you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Hey, Joel. Howdy, Eric. How you doing, my friend? I am vertical. How are you? <laughs> uh, similar. Similar. <laughs> uh, how was your Christmas? It was lovely. How about you? So, and, and I mean, we uh, right now uh, we're having a, a nice time. My wife's family is in town, and so uh, we're a lot of baby time, a lot of spending time with the family. And uh, her mother's Jewish. Her dad is not, but um, you know they they are what you would probably call secular Christians, and they they really actually stopped celebrating Christmas a while ago, other than uh, culturally, as we do uh, Chinese food in a movie, which which is uh, what a lot of Jews do. Boy, it's oh, the, we're turning into the new year. It's Chris, uh, New Year's Eve tonight. Do you have any plans for tonight? Yeah, we're going to have uh, an early dinner. We're going to take out some steaks and probably be asleep by nine. And then uh, tomorrow is actually my wife's birthday. Uh, she's January 1st. And as you know, I'm April 1st. So uh, we'll celebrate that. Uh, what about you all? I don't think we have big plans. We're staying in and staying here. Uh, we're too far away from any of the big city celebrations. And even if there were any, we wouldn't be going in, under COVID. So exactly. uh, it's a camp down night and then you wait for the vaccines to take effect and for there to be enough immunity around the country. Well, you mentioned New Year's Eve, and uh, I, I think that transfers to what we want to talk about today. I think uh, it, our title could be Getting Better. And I was just thinking about what New Year's is in terms of American culture and how we celebrate it and thinking of the idea of New Year's resolutions. And I know that certainly the two of us and uh, our listeners and many people in America are praying not only for the next year to be better, but just quite frankly, praying for this year to be over. And there's a lot of hope for the future there. There's also possibly some sadness for what did happen this year in all sorts of realms and arenas. But I, I think lots of us look to the new year with this idea of, or certainly a hope that our society is going to be better. You yourself will be better, whether it means you know, going to the gym more, eating less chocolate, being nicer to your spouse, being a kinder person, all those things we do when we make resolutions. And I just think that there's a lot of interesting overlap with what our religions might have to say about the idea of being better. And so I thought maybe we could talk about that today. I love it. Yeah, that's uh, a great – a lot of people hit the new year and have that impulse. Like, I, I want to be better. I want to get better. I want to be better at uh, something in the new year. So I love that. And, and my next sermon series is called Making Change. It'll be a six-week series all the way to Ash Wednesday, somewhere around mid-February. And I'm looking at six or seven different components of making change well. What does it take to to really bring about good change in one's life? Uh, so I, I'm hoping that this this podcast episode with you will help me get ready for that sermon <laughs> series that starts January 10th. I mean, I, I, I do think sometimes about the 
there's an intersection. I'm, I'm thinking of the Jewish high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are typically in the fall. Well, they're always in the fall. Um, and the idea that things don't just happen on their own. And I, and I think there's almost a, an implicit wish that, oh, it's January 1st. It's a new year. Things are going to be better. And that's not how it works. You know, it takes intention. It takes action. Uh, for us, I think living through and with our faiths and uh, this idea of making not only resolutions and commitments, but living them and actually doing them, which of course is the idea of a resolution. But I, I think, you know, the, the idea of a New Year's resolution is somewhat willy-nilly that there's no, I, I hesitate to use the word penalty, but there's no penalty if you don't go to the gym three times a week or if you don't you take the class that you want to take. Whereas in Judaism, the idea of making a vow and then breaking it is very serious. So serious, in fact, that one of our high holidays is called all of these vows. It's the Kol Nidre service on Yom Kippur, where we talk about the vows that we're making to ourselves, to each other, and to God, and that we need to follow through with them. I did not know that. Uh, that's in Yom Kippur, and it's a special day to honor vows? Yeah, so Yom, Yom Kippur literally means the Day of Atonement, mm -hmm. or some people, myself included, say the Day of At-One-Ment. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the most serious, solemn day in the Jewish calendar. It's a day of fasting. Uh, it's the day when certainly members of my congregation are in services for more than they are the entire year, mm -hmm. possibly combined. That's not how I meant it. I, it this, the day one can be in services eight, ten hours for the, the day. Mm -hmm. um, one idea of that is because you're fasting until sunset, this, you know, what, what else are you going to do besides pray and, uh, and uh, spend the day in, in shul and synagogue together? But the evening service ha has a specific title to it, all of these vows, kol nidre, and there's a beautiful prayer that has a hundred years old melody to it, and many congregations will hire a violinist or a cellist to play that haunting, beautiful melody. You could find it all over YouTube, I'm sure. K-O-L, and then second word, N-I-D-R-E-I, Kol Nidre. Wow. So there's this uh, passage in the Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he he goes through this litany of, you have always heard it said, but I say to you. And one of those is, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. You'll, you'll carry out the vows you've made. Uh, then he says something like, but I say to you, don't swear at all. Um, don't make an oath at all. Not by heaven, not by God, not by Jerusalem. Um, don't even swear by your own, your own life. Um, just say yes where you can say yes, say no, where you can't. And anything more than that comes from the evil one, uh, he, he says it. And I, I wonder what was going on in, in his tradition that made him resist vows uh, the way they were doing them. Um, and I wonder what that means for, for the changes. Jesus definitely invited us to make change in our own lives and pushed us to do so, called out religious leaders to make change. I, I wonder what, from his Jewish tradition, what oaths 
how they were being misused or how they were being misinterpreted that that he resented and rejected. As we talked about, I think, in one of our previous episodes, the words in Judaism, just the idea of speech and thought are foundational building blocks of creation. God speaks the world into existence. Uh, you might say in, in the beginning there was the word um, from, from the New Testament. And so the, the idea that words are as much a part of creation as our actions and the physical objects that we find um, it is profoundly important to Judaism. And so I also think, too, what makes someone take an oath? What makes someone want to change and be better? It's because you, you don't like something about the status quo, whether it's, again, your weight or the status of uh, the warring people in the world, you know, to take it a little more globally, it, that, that requires action. And um, you have to be disappointed with something about the way that the world is to want it to be different in the world to be. And I think that's what motivates us to say, I am going to do this, or I think we should do this. It's to create a different tomorrow than what we are experiencing today in some facet of our lives. Nice. Perhaps perhaps what he was getting at was people are quick to make hollow or shallow oaths. They they sense a little something and say, yeah, I probably need to do that. Um, I promise I'm going to do that better from now on. And, and they don't mean it. And they haven't thought about it. They have no plan to start that. And the weight and the tradition of their habits and their unintentional disciplines is so strong that to really get up tomorrow morning and do it differently, that's hard. The old habit, even if it's a bad one, has way more power than our will to do the good, healthy one. Uh, Absolutely. And the way to, and to break a habit is a little bit at a time remembering how hard it is to chip away at the old habit, whether it was intentional or unintentional. Every time you do the new one, it's not like you've broken the old one. You're just chipping away at it. And in a way, it's never gone. Anything you've ever done habitually is never gone. It's always in you. But you you try to chip away at it, get it small enough where it doesn't rule you and it doesn't um, predetermine your actions today. The new habit, the healthier habit, it will be the one that you choose. Right. I also think, too, of it's not only breaking a bad habit, but it's whenever you make a commitment to do something. And again, it could be a hobby. It could be a sport. It could be reading. That means you're not doing something else. And I, I think too often people will say, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that without thinking, okay, I have this many hours in the day that I actually can do things other than, you know, what I'll call the necessities, you know, work, family, eating, sleeping. And you're probably not able to do all the things you'd like to do. Um, and, and so it really is a discernment that I think we as people often don't take seriously enough. And I know in congregational life, and I, I have a feeling you're going to agree with me, you know, most ideas are good ideas. When people say, oh, you know, 
we should do this, Rabbi, right? We we should do this for this population or do that. And, you know, it, on an infinite timeline, absolutely. But with a certain number of hours in a day, with a limited number of staff and hours and budgets, we have to we have to prioritize what should we do and what should we not do. And that that is really difficult. Nice. I, I think that's one of the there were six or seven ways, I don't remember even where I saw it now, that are helping me get this sermon series off the ground for making change. But some of the little things that I do remember about it were, one, just pick one issue. Pick the most important one, pick one, and start there. And then start small. Pick one small way to start making a difference on that one issue. Uh, and then the, another part of that, those two combined, was and realize what you're no longer going to be doing because you are doing the new thing. You have fixed resources in your time and in your money and in your attention or whatever. So any change you want to make isn't just the addition of some new way of doing something. It is also the omission of the old way of doing Absolutely. it or some other thing that you're you, you didn't mind that you did it, but you have to let that thing go to start the new intentional thing. Uh, and what is it? It takes more than willpower. I, I, I'm amazed at how many people think that willpower is the key to change. And it's the will is so weak, <laughs> really. It, it takes uh, a community. It, it takes uh, vulnerability and accountability. It takes uh, repeating the new way uncomfortably many, many times for it to become something that is your new way of being. Uh, for me, one of the weird things as I decided to go to seminary and came through seminary and now pastor, one of the weirdest things for me to have a habit of is prayer. Uh, I was, I called myself a Christian and, and had very weird, erratic, uh, fox holy prayer life uh, only and and it's been odd to watch my evolution of prayerfulness as kind of a it's not a thing that you do sometimes it is but it's not just a thing you do it's a it's a preparation of the self intentional preparation of the self to go into that space where you try to zone out the other and confess and listen um, and I, I think about that odd change in my own life. I'm probably 20 years into trying to make that change, and I'm still chipping away at the old habits uh, and trying to find a way to do to the, the habit I intended better and constantly learning about what better would look like when it comes to prayer life. Um, there are two words in the Torah that I think relate to this, and they're, they're also uh, incredibly important uh, and certainly take place at a liminal part of, of our history. Just after we got the Ten Commandments, the Jewish people under Mount Sinai said, Na'aseh v'nishma, which roughly translates to, we will do and we will hear or we will understand. And it's interesting because if you think about what motivates you to do something, whether it's a rule or a habit or a law, you want to understand it first. Well, what's the reason for not speeding? Well, 
it makes sense. You don't want to hit other cars. You don't want to be dangerous. Okay. Um, what's the reason why uh, more than one person can't get up to use the bathroom at once in school? So you, you, you find out the reasons, and then once they make sense to you, and hopefully they do, you, you mostly follow the, the laws. This is why no one needs to know why – sorry, no one needs to know what the consequences for murdering someone because we, we already understand that it's wrong to murder. But some laws we have – don't necessarily make sense and we have to follow them anyway, right? And so that could be a, a city law, that could be state, that could be federal, that could be in your own house, something your parents tell you to do that you don't think makes sense or you don't think is fair. And the way this relates to the Torah is because our ancestors, our, our sages in Judaism told us that the way Judaism works, you have to do it consistently, habitually, and only after doing it does the understanding come. It's not the other way around. And this was really brought home to me. I was in uh, Las Vegas for a, a Jewish singles convention, of all things. Um, this is about 15 years ago. And there's a phenomenal book. Uh, the last name is Levine, I think. We'll put it in the show notes. And the book uh, is called Something Like the Year of Living Biblically where the author, who uh, was a self-professed secular Jew, lived according to the Bible for one year. And one of the things he did, because the Bible says it, is to give away one-tenth of your wealth. We call that tithing, right? And, you know, like many of us, he it's not like he wanted to do that, but he felt like he had to because that's what the Bible said. And when he was speaking to us, he said, what I found so interesting was that after I repeated that action multiple times, I no longer did it because I had to. I did it because I want to. And so in that way, I think Jewish law at its best and Jewish living makes us better. I, I so love the way that resonates with how I try to walk the way. Uh, a lot of times Christians call themselves people of the way. Are you a Mandalorian fan? This is the way. Yes, but don't, I'm, I'm, oh, right. <laughs> I have spoken. Uh, yeah, I'm only on the third episode of season two. So am I. That's exactly where I am. But he has this whole uh, battle inside himself with honoring the code, but not always understanding why. Like, it just, it's just this the way we do it. And he's offended if he bumps into another Mandalore who doesn't obey the way, the way he kind of obeys it. Uh, but there is something about his way of doing it that makes him the beautiful character, uh, that makes him honor the oaths that he's taken, that makes him follow all the way through and protect the littlest. Uh, he's obviously broken. <laughs> And, and messed up and kills a lot of people. So I I struggle to find him as the hero. He's more of a the anti-hero, but uh, it's it's a great show and I'm enjoying it. Um, yes, it is. When it comes to following the way, uh, I you know, this Rabbi Jesus, it it makes more sense to hear you talk about it now for me because uh, there were moments where he he would buck the other religious leaders so hard because they were going through the motions but weren't anymore embodying the learning of going through the motions. It's like they thought that the motion itself was now the point instead of the 
the change that repeating that motion creates in us and in the community. And so he would always try to push reset on that. And he would give them a new motion or uh, it would be very similar to the old one, but it would it would try to reset them so they would remember, okay, I'm going to do this new habit. And from this new habit, I'll learn the old lesson of generosity, of of giving of myself for this for the sake of the wider group. Uh, and, and I'm I'm interested as as we go into this new year, uh, how are all the religious people out there struggling to name the new thing that they want in order to make the world a better place? I'm also concerned as you and I talk about better, we, we may have to give some attention to not letting there be a shame component in that. Uh, there are people who will hear the term better and they'll already be in such a bad place that they'll hear the invitation to be better as a, a judgment or a shaming accusation of where they are. Um, and I, I want to encourage anyone hearing you and me talk about this, that from my perspective, I am inviting you to enjoy life and to live it more fully. Uh, if you struggle where you are, and you don't have the strength to move from there, uh, Eric and I will just come be right there beside you, right? We're not going to make you move. We, we love you right where you are. But if you're needing or wanting or excited to try some new things and to make make life better for you and those around you, the reason we're having this conversation is to invite you into that without any shame on what is behind you or, or where you find yourself today. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Joel. I, absolutely. I, I also think uh, it's meaningful to me that in Judaism, what we call tzedakah, the act of kind of, it's loosely translated as giving charity. It's, it comes from the root word tzedek, which means righteousness or justice. And so, you know, kids in Hebrew school will give money to tzedakah. Then they pick a cause or an organization to give it to. And Jewish law says that everyone has to give tzedakah, even the neediest person. But the flip side is that neediest person is also getting tzedakah. And so that's the community aspect. And so it's my obligation, not only when we talk about being better, it's not only about me being better. I have to be concerned about you being better and everyone else being better also. And to me, that is a part of what you just, I think, beautifully articulated. As a rabbi, how do you help people? We talk about it as sin is both a choice and a condition. Uh, it's the things that we choose to do or the things that we kind of uh, – we don't choose not to do. Uh, we play along with them or we're silent. In the face of injustice or oppression, we do nothing. That is a sin of choice. So it's a, it's a, a singular sin, a sin of me, my – my choice or my participation in it or my lack of resistance to it. There's also a condition of sin in our theology, the sins of those who came before us that have so infected and infested our, our culture and our communities that they seem normal to us, but they're really bad. Uh, I think of it as those who were born in the early 1800s in, in America, many of them thought of slavery as very normal and saw other human beings as non-human beings. Uh, so that was obviously a, a sin, but it's a condition 
conditioned to sin and the environment in which to they're, they're born. And they are both responsible for their choice of participating in it as well as the condition around them. And I, would, as I try to describe that theologically to folk, I find some people just, oh, they cannot do it. They, they want to shirk off any of the responsibility for anything that happened before them. They don't want to feel at all responsible for the sins of the culture, the sins of the world, the sins of the nation, the sins of the community into which they just find themselves. Because, and I get it, if, if you start to say, yes, I'm semi-responsible for the sins of my nation, what in the world can I as one person do about that? And it feels so hopeless. So there, I wonder how you as a rabbi help somebody deal with the weight of this, the massive brokenness around us. And, and if somebody is wanting to be better or to make change in this new year and they want to, for the country to, to be better or for their congregation to be, to be better, how do you help them when they get that defeated sense like, oh, it's just too big? Uh, that's a great question. It it applies as equally to me as my congregation. I, mean, I I certainly have felt it before and even more certainly in the last nine months, right? Um, from, a, from a scripture place, a liturgical place, that our central prayer, um, which I could, <laughs> it's a, a whole nother podcast, um, but it starts off praying to the God of our ancestors. And so in English, it, it, it says, um, praised are you, Adonai, our God, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And in my sect of Judaism, we've added the names of our ancestral mothers as well, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. And what that tells me and I would say the Talmud also, because it has a beautiful story about this, is that, first of all, we're not praying to those people. We're praying to the God of those people. But it, we're a monotheistic religion. We invented monotheism. So why does it need to say the God of all of these people? It's because, first of all, the relationship of between God and each person is unique. It teaches that. And it also teaches that um, their lives are different, which means that my life can be different and my perception of society can not only can, but should be different. And, you know, it, it's like the joke, my Judaism isn't my grandfather's Judaism, right? Like you, you have to take it for yourself. And so to one extent, I think of your question in terms of the guilt is even if it's someone from your own family you, you could be sad about that and you can regret that, but you also need to do your job um, to bring righteousness and justice as much as much as you can. And just like it, just like we do with New Year's resolutions, pick one thing that is doable. You know, not you're not curing the world of Corona. You're not creating world peace. But what are you doing? Um, I have a congregant, uh, and I, I saw her today walking. She and a few friends call themselves the Anonymous Ruths, and they dress up like Ruth Bader Ginsburg of blessed memory and are walking around town telling people to vote. Now, granted, that, that is a political, possibly partisan thing, but I, I feel comfortable saying that for this person, that that is a um, 
that that's a way that she's living her Judaism and her sense of being better, right? Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but certainly dances around it a little bit. Going back to the high holidays, we have this concept, a lot of Hebrew words today, we have this concept called tshuva, which literally means turning or returning. And it's what we call repenting. When you repent, when you make apologies to someone, you do tshuva. And again, apology is too weak of a term. But one thing that that I think is so important during the high holidays is that it is never too late for anyone to do tshuva. Now, that doesn't mean that you can go out and murder and then do something good and you're quote-unquote absolved. But it also doesn't mean that once you do something horrible, you can never do something right. And every person is capable of, you know, to use the metaphor of a ladder, of climbing that ladder of tshuva or of holiness. The problem is, I think, we use the guilt as a reason why we shouldn't. Oh, I'm so horrible. I, I, I don't deserve to do this. No, that that is actually in some ways your penance. Your punishment is you have to do it. Oh, I love that. Uh, so if you're going to see either I'm the world is so broken that I'm one little person and I can't make a difference. No, you you actually do make a difference because you are one little part of the big world, or I'm so broken that I don't deserve to do it. No, actually, because of your brokenness, you are now responsible to to do it. Uh, Absolutely. I, I love the way that, that it comes around. I, I, I sometimes get stuck helping folks hold on to both truths at the same time, is are we individuals or are we part of the greater whole? And the answer is both and. But yes, you are a unique individual and you are connected to the wider community. So both are true for the good you can do. Both are true for the bad that that comes down upon you or through you or despite you. Uh, Both are true for their impact on the small world as well as the big world. And, and how to help somebody just become okay with that ridiculous, paradoxical truth. Uh, so, yeah, I, I had a professor uh, at my seminary that talked about uh, that that's, that's a case of dancing at two weddings at once, which Jews do all the time. And, you know, you might call that a dialectic or, or a paradox. Um, but there is a Jewish midrash, a story that suggests that at all times in our lives, we carry around two metaphorical sayings, one in each pocket. One is the world was created for you. And the other, which comes from the book of Job, is I am nothing but dust and ashes. And both of those are equally true. I was just sure the other pocket was going to say I was created for the world. Oh, nice. That could be a third pocket, the back pocket. pocket. (laughs) My my Hebrew Bible professor in seminary, Walter Brueggemann, would often talk about, you were talking about the Judaism of my father is not my Judaism. But there's something that I'm learning about Christianity, and maybe it's true for religion as a whole, is as a younger person, the only religion that I knew was that of the others around me. 
uh, it wasn't my own. And Walter Brueggemann would call that orientation. And then comes this point in in my story and, and in the grand narrative of all things where you realize that doesn't work. Their version of it doesn't work for me. And you have to like cut it off and abandon it and try to craft your own. And that's disorientation. And then it kind of wraps back around and you find a reorientation. And what's interesting to me is reorientation has so many similarities to the original orientation. Uh, a lot of differences for sure, if we actually got better on that journey. But you you realize, oh, so much of the faith of my ancestors, I now re-inherit. And I now reclaim so and, and, and accept and love. And then to watch my own grown sons kind of, uh, in a lot of ways, reject uh, some of my ways of doing things or my way of talking about things or whatever, I, I think... Good job, boys. Go for it. Time of disorientation. Y'all get out there. Uh, and I wait for the reorientation for them where they resonate again with some of what they found in me. Not all of it, but some of it. And and they appreciate some of what they hear from me. I It's funny. I learned the same kind of thing, but using the term second naivete. So I, I learned it in the context of theologically, you know, many of us grow up and we believe that, you know, God is all powerful and all knowing and all good. And we get older, we realize things aren't, I don't, I don't want to say that simple, but, um, you know, it can't be constrained as such. And we reject that. But then we come to this second naivete where, where we bring some of that back and incorporate it with our own experience. The other thing is that... Uh, ver, uh, What's the William James book? Varieties of Religious Experience? I think so. There's another book, and I'm forgetting the name. We'll get it in the show notes, that um, took that as an inspiration. And uh, it's, a, it's a much more modern book. It's for a, a lay person. And its basic premise is how religion is not a third-person activity. It's a first-person activity. And so like you said, when we grow up and we're in Hebrew school or church, you learn what others think about God or what others think about these stories from the Torah or from the Bible. Um, and it's not until later that you're able to incorporate them into your own theology. Mm, nice. I, I can sense that now as you, as you say that out loud. I, I wonder if the variety of religious experience, if orientation is kind of the third person and the disorientation is the the second person where you confront it and then the reorientation is the first person you put a exactly you put an i or we on it yep i think that's exactly right to bring this back to the to the you know a higher altitude of, of our topic for me and I know this isn't true for everyone, but for me, what is the purpose of religion if not getting better? Um, and, and that and that means myself getting better, becoming a, a better Jew, which I'm not sure what that means, <laughs> um, but certainly a, a better man, a better husband, a better father, a better rabbi, um, 
better in terms of healing the world, what we call tikkun olam, the repair of the world, uh, and better in relationship with others, with God. Um, but that ultimately for me is what religion is about. Um, so it, it's hard for me to separate, um, you know, this theme we have today from just the the enterprise of religion itself. Do, do you feel similarly or, or different? Yeah, I don't think if somebody doesn't think anything can get better, they have no need for religion. And what I do find, though, sometimes is those who have a sense that uh, all of them, they're still stuck in that third person. They are the problem. We're good, but they need to get better. Uh, a lot of them do like religion. People come to religion with that attitude, and they think, we're, we're the religious. We're the good. We're fine. We don't need to do anything better here. We're, we're doing it just right. It's them out there beyond religion that are the problem, or them of the other religion that are the problem. Uh, and and I, I ache for that when I see that. Healthy religion is a confession that there is no they. <laughs> There's only the we. And those of us who are willing to step in and covenant with one another to try to do everything, to do the worldly community better, uh, we do it not against them. We do it with and for them. We don't only do it for ourselves. We do it, yes, for ourselves, but also for them. In fact, we're willing to sacrifice some of our own preferences or desires so that the whole can be better for all, not just better for us. And there's got – I think the only healthy betters are, aren't individual betters. They – like if a person decides I'm really going to stop doing this, well, that will make a better family life for not just that person, but everybody that person deals with. Uh, I'm going to break this bad habit. Well, that doesn't just give you longer life. It, it gives everybody that you know a fresher, healthier experience with you and for a longer period of time. Uh, so how to how to keep the better uh, goal framed through the communal aspect uh, so that the individualism doesn't win, doesn't uh, doesn't trump uh, all the other stuff around us. <laughs> nice, nice use of words there. Um, I don't know if you were aware of this, but in part of what you just said, you were channeling a very famous rabbi of the first century, Rabbi Hillel. And I, I want to read this short quote of his, which uh, is pretty well known in Jewish circles. And the book that this comes from is called Pirkei Avot, which translates to Ethics of the Fathers or Ethics of the Ancestors. And it's a great book to read or study because many of its sayings are very short, pithy quotes uh, from sages and rabbis of old, and they, they really spur some good discussion and thought. So this is what Hillel said, and I think it's in, not only relevant to what you just said, but our entire conversation today. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I am only for myself, what am I? And then the third question, if not now, when? Hmm. Jeez, sometimes you just take us so deep I can't hardly breathe. 
Well, I didn't do it. Hillel, Hillel did, did it. it. But, nice. <laughs> yeah. You know that Hillel quote is on the wall at Mercedes-Benz Stadium? I do know that because I saw it with you when you took me to a soccer game there. <laughs> and I remember seeing that. That's right. That's right. That's the other well, thing I'm applies. looking for this year is going to live soccer games. Oh, I bet it is for you. For me, it's live music. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, always good talking with you, Joel. You too, brother. Well, which you know, movie I, I did actually, you see? We actually saw a Tedit, the new um, Christopher Nolan film, uh-huh. which maybe one of our listeners can explain to me because I've been on a rabbit hole of YouTube videos and timelines. Do, do you know about this movie? I loved it. I got to see it with my middle son in a theater uh, here in Delaware. Oh, I can't believe you saw it in a theater. That is something, especially with the visuals and sound and everything. Yes. And I feel like there's something to that movie in, in terms of the nature of time and fatalism that that is relevant uh, to religion and spirituality. But again, I don't understand it enough yet <laughs> to know how to tease that out. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real. <laughs>